I'd like to speak this evening about being in the ocean of life. In this process that we've been engaged in together now for pretty close to a week, we see how easily there arises a sense that we ourselves somehow have the feeling or the urge that we need to make happen what is happening. That we somehow are able to or should be able to determine what takes place in our experience and our hearts and our minds. And it's really quite hard to accept, I think, for most of us that the fundamental things really happen by themselves. That our breath just comes in and goes out. It doesn't require us to do that. That our body, if we take food, of course, so we have some involvement here, but if we take some food and put it in our mouth and chew and swallow it, our body digests it and uses it to create more or replace parts of the body that's here. Something quite remarkable that takes place in that simple everyday activity. Breathing, taking food, just maintaining our body temperature at approximately 36.7 degrees centigrade and not getting too far away from that because if we do we feel really unwell. Our body works really hard at that. There's an incredible intelligence being expressed in the very sustaining of our existence, moment after moment after moment. And yet somehow it's really easy to not quite see that that's what's happening here. There's a way in which we are held in life if we could but understand it, we would experience life very differently. And we could imagine, perhaps you might have tried this, I don't know, but it's certainly worth trying. But for now you can imagine what it would be like to just lie down in the grass with the clear night sky, shining, glittering stars, and all the deep, inky blackness, just gazing at what's there. Just imagine lying on the earth. And then just contemplate, as you do so, as you imagine, that in fact, right now, you're not lying on the earth, looking up, at the sky, you're actually stuck to the bottom of the planet and you're looking down into this vast, open, empty cosmos. And from where I come from, New Zealand, this is the bottom. (laughs) So I'm not making this up. You can buy maps, it's clear. This is the bottom. 
In New Zealand, you can buy those maps. And, you know, so we're there. Just imagine, we're suspended over this vast, empty galaxy, cosmos, universe, whatever word we give to it. And you know what's remarkable? So we don't fall off. Really, we don't. And we take that so for granted. But if it wasn't for gravity, the first thing that would happen if we moved is that we would just ping off the surface and float out into whatever it is that's out there. And you know the odds of landing on one of those little bright spots out there, given how much of it isn't that? The odds are pretty low. So we're really fortunate that we're here and that somehow the Earth holds us. I mean, scientists call that gravity. You know what that means? Gravity means that things attract each other. Mass is attracted to mass. And the more mass, the more attraction. What does that mean? Really, what does that mean? What it means for us is that somehow we stick to the earth. Really fortunate. Really fortunate. Not only do we stick to it, but if we try and move around on it, we don't fall in. Have you noticed? You can stand on this thing and it holds your weight up. Again, we're really lucky to have turned up somewhere like that. Most of the planets, it wouldn't happen that way. You just fall right into it. It's liquid or gas. Luckily, this one's quite firm and solid. You know, it's sort of like we're in the right place. But again, it's easy not to realise that. To somehow feel like, I'm not sure if I'm in the right place. Or sometimes we're a little clearer, I definitely am not in the right place. How do we turn up here? We don't know exactly how we turned up here, but in some ways it's remarkably fortunate that we turned up here, given the other options. And what does it mean for us to contemplate that? And how we might look at our life. There's a story that I first heard from one of my teachers in India of a man who went on a long journey. And in India, journeys can be very long. He was going on a train journey. And the, the super fast trains averaged about, I seem to remember it was about sort of 40 kilometres an hour. The slow local trains, they didn't go that fast at all. So you can have some really long journeys. And anyway, the story is, well, the story was that this man carried his great big suitcase to the train that he got on board and found his seat. And the way that they carry um, suitcases, they carry them on their head. So he carried this great big suitcase onto the train, sat down on a seat, and he kept it there as the train headed off. And you wonder, what's going on? He says, I need to make sure it comes with me. I don't want to leave it behind. I've got to hold on to it. And we'd all kind of look a little bit, "Mm, yeah, sure, but you know, if you put that down, you don't have to hang on to it. It'll just come along with you. Now, it's kind of obvious on a train, isn't it? But life is a little bit like that. There's so much the sense that I'm somehow trying to get a hold of this thing and, you know, get it to balance. And uh, here we are. Oh, it's heavy. Has anyone felt their shoulders or their neck or their head a bit sore these days? A few people have mentioned it. You know, it's like we're carrying a lot of weight. 
we might need to question, perhaps we have been questioning, do we need to be carrying it? Because somehow it seems that things just come along with us. We don't need to hold them or to carry them in that way. That really life carries us much more so than we imagine. And as we perhaps start to get a sense of what that means for us, we start to relax into the truth of this. Some of the sense of the weight lifts and we start to experience life as lighter than we might have imagined, as less burdened or weighed down. This is something we may sometimes encounter here. We just notice a sense of lightness. We don't quite know where or why, where it comes from or why, but just a sense of lightness. Like So much of what we're learning to do here is to put down what we don't need to carry. It's a great story from um, Jack Cornfield, who's one of the senior teachers of our tradition. And he, he uh, wasn't so much a story, but a teaching. He was uh, talking about what it means to come on retreat and saying how most people think of it, this is like going to shopping, like going to the store. You get all these really good things. That's where you go on retreat. He says, no, it's not like that. Coming here is like going to the dump. <laughs> come here to let go of the things we don't need to carry around with us anymore that tend to fill up our attic or our living room and literally our living room gets filled with all the things that we carry and it's understandable of course sometimes we need to bring things with us because we haven't yet fully understood them and we need to understand them in order to let them go there's still a purpose and a function there So it's not that we in any way need to be hard on ourselves for finding we carry things. But to start to look and see, do I need to? What do I imagine I get from carrying, from holding on to this? A lot of what we get is a sense of security, a sense of safety, a sense of it's familiar and known, and it's sort of in my control. Even if it's really difficult and painful, at least if I hang on to it, it, at least I know where it is and what's going on. Sometimes we, we, we form a sense of who we are based around the things that are really difficult. That we, we feel like, at least if I know that's who I am and I'm like this, then I'm sort of in control of it. I sort of can deal with it. I can handle it. I've got my strategies. I've been practicing it for years, decades, most of us. Kind of know how to handle ourself, so we think. Our story, our history. And yet there's this invitation here to let go. There's an invitation here to say, mm, maybe maybe we don't need to hold on to those stories of who we are, those beliefs of what we are or what we are not, that so quickly and powerfully seem to entangle us in a sense of limitation and bondage. It's like we can feel, oh, I'd like to let go, it sounds good, yeah. You know, the advertisements are all right, but I'm just not sure what that's going to be like. I'm not sure what's going to happen if I do. So, you know, mm, it's not easy. There's a, um, a story of a man who was uh, walking along on a clifftop. And he wasn't paying attention. He was thinking about something he had to do next week, probably, you know, the way we do. And he stumbled at the edge and fell over the cliff, plunged 
50 metres, 50 yards down, caught hold of a branch sticking out of the out of the cliff, a small tree, and held it suspended above this further 100 metres fall and a, a river and rocks below, terrified, despite having been a lifelong atheist. The man says, God, help me! And was rather shocked to hear a voice coming back. That's what they all say. <laughs> no, no, God, please help me. I know I've been an atheist, but I'm starting to have faith. <laughs> if you save me, I'll believe in you forever. That's what they all say, came the loud voice rumbling across from the sky. I've heard that before. No, 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 I really mean it. I have faith. I'll do anything. Please save me. Okay, said the voice, I'll save you. Let go of the branch. Let go of the branch? You think I'm mad? (laughs) Do we feel that sometimes in our body? (laughs) Holding on? What does it take to allow that that contraction, that spasm to begin to open? What actually allows that to happen? It's not something we can do. Something that happens within us. When we start to understand what's going on here, we start to see what's true. So I have another image that I find interesting could or useful. We could imagine just walking along by the seashore. And uh, just for the case story in the scenario, imagine that we can't swim. It's the case for lots of people. Maybe some here. And then, having lost our footing, we fall into the sea. And of course, the first reaction is to start to struggle and to, you know, cough and choke and fear, of course, would arise. And flailing about. And then imagine that we discovered that actually if we stopped flailing about, we floated. Because we've fallen into the Dead Sea. And actually, even if you try really hard, you can't get under the surface. And yet, there's a sense of this fluidity, there's a sense of it's not quite holding me up, and yet it is. And actually, for many people who can swim, regular water feels much like that. What is it to notice that we're not sinking? Even though the feeling at times might say, ah! Of course, sometimes it's like that, it feels that way. But we're not sinking, we're here. To actually notice that. The invitation to let go, that is really the invitation to freedom. The invitation to let go asks us courage, asks us to be willing to 
in some ways take a risk. And it's a bit like we could imagine it like stepping off a cliff or stepping out of an aeroplane. It's got that feeling for us. Often, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And so we can listen to and perhaps reflect on the teachings and the sharings of wise and compassionate beings who have gone before us or who are in this living generation. And One of the other senior teachers of our tradition, the Insight Meditation tradition, who's been a teacher for me and also a friend, is Joseph Goldstein. And he has a beautiful teaching on this on this theme. He says, you know, letting go, it's a bit like jumping out of an aeroplane, you know, going parachuting, jumping out of an aeroplane. And just as you jump out, realizing, oh no, I've left my parachute behind. And just as you realize that you've left your parachute behind, you look down and see that there's no ground. There's nothing to land on. There's nothing you're going to hit. When I, uh, about 15, 16 years ago now, I lived and worked at the Insight Meditation Society, which he co-founded. And I was teaching there. And uh, when I left, they, they gave me a card, which said, and I think I must have seen something I was interested in. Anyway, and the card said, could you tell the difference between falling and flying if there was no ground? Could you tell the difference between falling and flying if there was no ground? What does that mean for us? To see that there's no ground. That the sense of of vulnerability, of insubstantiality, of change, of fluidity, of uncontrollability, all of which can seem so threatening and scary that we feel, and for often, for many of us, it could be this experience of like, of falling, of like this, and the the fear that, that can arise in that, which is understandable. And yet, at the most fundamental level, there's no something solid, ground, that we're going to impact into from that condition. What there is, is fluidity. What there is, is openness. What there is, is the very nature of life that we are part of. It's not that we've lost the ground, it's that the ground was always fluidity. So it's not that there's no ground, it's just that the ground is dynamic. And the dynamism, the movement, the apparent out-of-controlness that we experience... Is just part of that. And it's when we harden and tighten and rigidify in the attempt to somehow get in control of this, that's when we actually find ourselves being impacted. But it's the inner holding, the inner tightening, the inner clenching that creates that. And that the understanding of and the release of transforms. So 
So it's a little bit like a wave on the ocean. You could imagine a wave on the ocean. And it's, it's a nice day on the ocean, so we could be enjoying ourselves if we're just there, cruising along, along with all the other waves, waves behind us, waves in front of us, lots of company. How lovely. Imagine being a wave on the ocean, just moving along as one does. And then at some point, you see over in the distance the shoreline, and what's happening over there? I can't quite see. Middle-aged wave, you know. Something's going on. And you keep going, and then a little while later, you get a bit closer, and what do we see? We see the, the waves, a certain way ahead, are hitting the shore. And what's happening to them? It just appears to be disintegrating, being destroyed, annihilated, demolished. And it's kind of like, oh dear, that's scary. That's really scary. Look at that. And then we realise, just a moment, you know, we're heading that way. There's only one direction here. It's going that way. And, you know, this thing hasn't got a reverse gear. A wave on the ocean, a human being in the journey of life. But the wave, it just goes and it goes and goes. And then, of course, eventually, crashes onto the beach, onto the shore. And the wave is no more. It seems. But in all of that, what happens to the water? What happens to the water? It's unharmed. It's unharmed. So we're being invited here to sense, to recognize, and to come to know the very medium of life of which we are a part. Just as the wave appears separate from the water and endangered by the shore. Of course the wave in no ultimate or real way is separate from the body of water we call the ocean. How could it be? How could it be? How can we be other than part of all of this? How is it that we come to conceive of me and you, of this and that, and somehow believe that those conceivings have the capacity to set one thing apart from another? those conceivings somehow really create separation, distance, or disjuncture. How is it that we come to imagine that? The story of a fish looking for the ocean, swimming around, asking the fish, where's the ocean? Now the fish says, oh, it's right here. No, 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 that's just water. It's 
It's right here. A fish can't swim out of the water any more than a stone can fall off the earth. As Meister Eckhart once pointed out, the fish cannot swim out of the water, a stone can't fall off the earth. This is the medium that we're already in. And you know, all our efforts bring our bring us no closer to it. Which might be slightly disappointing, possibly a relief. But interestingly, all our efforts take us no distance from it either. How could they? Nothing we do takes us away from what is true here. any more than it brings us closer. So what is it that's true here? If we allow ourselves to really trust the sensitive organ that's here, this heart-mind-body process unfolding as it does, moment by moment. If we allow ourselves to trust what's happening here more and more as we do in our practice and our time together, there's a way in which what we can start to sense or feel is a is a vibratory resonance or a quality of sensitivity in which we are touched as we are touching in which we are felt as we are feeling in which there's a a way in which something in the sense of what we feel is interior is in relationship to that which we conceive as exterior. You know, sometimes when we're walking and we just see the sunlight on a leaf or a drop of dew, or we just turn and catch a glimpse of a flower or a squirrel, and we feel something in our heart that just vibrates, that moves, that somehow speaks to us of something beautiful, of something precious, of something, we could say, almost magical, that we can't in our mind conceive, and yet our heart drinks in the sense of the nectar of that contact, or that touch, or that resonance. And what happens in that, you know, it can be a, a starry night, or just a random rock or pebble that, if we should happen to take it home, when we look at it the next day, may just be a, you know, something that should be on the drive. But in a moment of real openness and sensitivity, anything has the capacity to touch us. And that touching is something in which the 
the us-ness includes both the sense of me being touched and the sense of that which is touching me. That the interiority and the exteriority don't make sense in that touch. Because it goes right through. Right through us. And we know this. This is something all of us have the experience of. Perhaps not always, perhaps not necessarily often, but it's something we know and recognize. And this that we're in contact with, it's what we're made of. This body, it's made of earth and water and fire and air and space. We've been exploring and invited to sense that. Temperature, it's fire, solidity, earth, cohesion is water. And I always wondered when I first heard that, water is cohesion? See what happens to a pile of dry powder, earth or flour, if you add water to it. It becomes cohered. This body, if you take away the water, it's the pile of dust. That's all. Cohesion, water. Fluidity, air, space, space. That's what's here. That's what's around us. There's nothing else. This that we experience as interiority and we conceive as exteriority or we imagine in those terms, can we really find that? The sense of inner, outer, Our lungs are full of the very air that's moving in the space around us, that's passing through the cells of the bodies of our companions here, of each of us. Some of the air we just breathed in, the carbon dioxide in that, some of that was in the cells, the very cells. I'm not just talking about the, the space in your lungs, but the very cells of some of your companions earlier. Hmm. We might think, hmm, not sure I like that, but it's true. Just as some of it was, the oxygen was in the cells of trees. Not just in some little pocket on the side of the trees or the leaves or the plants, but actually in the cells. What's inside? What's outside here? I mean, this, this whole process. Air is passing through membranes. Oxygen, carbon dioxide passing through membranes. This Digestive system where food gets in, it's like material is passing through membranes. What's on the outside becomes on the inside. And is there a moment where suddenly it goes from being stuff to being me? Where is that moment? Could you say, you know, well, it's sitting on the plate, well, it's definitely not me. You know, it's sort of in my mouth, well, I don't think it's me. Hopefully it tastes good. It's in my stomach, well, it's getting there, but it's still not really me. Then at some point, it's me, we say. And then some of it, of course, you know, keeps on moving, and that's definitely not me. <laughs> but you see how we do that with our mind? The way of conceiving that separates? You know, what is this, really, if we look at it? 
It's a hollow tube. It's a hollow tube. It's quite a long hollow tube. It's all sort of wiggly in the middle. And it's got these appendages on for feeding itself. And for running around to make sure something else doesn't feed it. Feed it, it itself on us. And to get us to where we can find some more food. It's basically a hollow tube with these appendages. And another one on the top for figuring out what food is and what it isn't. And what might think of us as food and what won't. It's its basic function. It's what's going on in 99% of living organisms. We've got a few extra things going on. But we compromise a tiny percentage of living organisms, the whole of humanity, actually. Ants outnumber everything else put together. It's just random biological information. Sorry. (laughs) And this hollow tube. You know, we think of me as the bit on the inside of this tube, but what's on the inside of this tube is a hole. It goes from here all the way down to the bottom and out. Well, we're definitely not on the inside of that, are we? So there's a hole right through the middle. There's a bit round the outside. And the bit round the outside of the big hole in the middle we call me. But does it make sense to do that? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Just as the wave conceive could con- if the wave could conceive itself as separate from the ocean, it would be subject to death and dissolution on the shore. So far as we conceive ourselves as separate from the ocean of life, we're born and we're going to die. And that's scary. So I was reflecting with some, some of you in a group this morning. I think it was the morning, not the afternoon. You know, the reality is, this whole system is wired up to stay here for as long as it possibly can and to do everything it can to not die. This whole biological thing is wired up for that. It's its primary thing apart from a couple of extra tubes that are designed for making more of us. <laughs> really. Apart from it, most of it's wired up for that. And here's this big tube trying to stay here as long as it possibly can. <laughs> all these appendages. And the reality is it's not going to do that. It's going to fail. No wonder. <laughs> it's under a bit of pressure at times. It's like here it is trying to stay here forever and it's just not going to. We all know that at some level. But in the cells, sometimes we haven't quite understood what that means. And so far as we've located what's actually real as this structure that I'm imagining the interiority of to be me, with a physiological, which we probably already know, no, no, I'm not really my body, But the mind is so closely identified with it so much of the time and we think, I'm the mind. The Buddha once observed that, you know, the mind's changing so much faster than the body. If you're going to take yourself to be something, you might as well take yourself to be your body because at least it's changing relatively slowly. The mind changes so much more quickly. It's so much more fluid and porous. We start to see that sometimes. How... The mind is porous. It doesn't hold water. So there's a way in which we can understand what's happening here. As a as a softening. 
as a melting, as a releasing of a contraction of the idea of being separate, of being other, of being apart from. Just as a block of ice melting in the ocean may appear and feel to be distinct from that which it is dissolving into. At another level, clearly it is not. It's simply water in one state, in water, floating in water in a different state. As we start to sense and to begin to more and more deeply trust the the fluidity of what is here, the fluidity of what is happening, there's a way in which we can begin to relax, we can begin to soften, we can begin to allow ourselves and to not resist the process of dissolving, of melting, of returning to the medium that is what we are and all things likewise. The sense of edges Distinctions, separateness. The sense of all of that is something created with no fundamental reality to it. And we can begin to see. And not, I don't mean see with our eyes or even our thinking mind. But with our heart, we can see the truth of this. I'd like to share a poem. It's by Liesel Mueller. And the title begins, Monet. I'll give you the whole title at the end, because I think it's better at the end myself. But it's referring to, it was in a way spoken from the voice of that great painter, Monet. And the poem reads, Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris and that what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges that you regret I don't see to learn that the line I called the horizon does not exist, and sky and water, so long apart, are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before, I could not see Rouen Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful errors, fixed notions of top and bottom, the illusion of three-dimensional space, Wisteria separate from the bridge it covers? What can I say to convince you that the Houses of Parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? 
I will not return to a universe of objects that do not know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow and white and cerulean lamps, small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light, our weighted shapes, these verticals burn to mix with air and change our bones, skin, clothes to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world. Blue vapour without end. And the poem is entitled Monet Refuses the Operation. To see through the contraction of boundariedness and the limitation of identifying with the conceiving of self as separate. To not understand that the forms and expressions that we can recognize and describe as individual, as specific, as beings, as limbs, to not see that those are useful ways to understand and speak about, but they are not ultimately real and true in the deeper sense of things. To see this is to release the heart and mind and body from the bounded and the boundaried nature that we imagine life to be. And to realize its unboundedness. To realize the unbounded heart. And the unbounded nature. This is freedom. This is what the teachings of the wise women and wise men of all times and ages have pointed us to. Have said, yes, this is the potential of your heart, your being. Because your heart and your being are part of this vastness. Inseparably so. Unshakably so. The Buddha once said, just as the taste of the four great oceans is one, the taste of salt, so too the taste of all my teachings is one, the taste of liberation. 
allowing ourselves here as we are, as we are, to rest in this that is here, as we do, as we do. In that, we can discover what it means. that the Buddha spoke of, liberation. What it means to abide in the ocean of life. And the natural response of the heart And the being from that place is really the wish to serve. To act and to live one's life in a way that contributes to the well-being of all that lives. And so the awakened heart and the awakened life is really a life of of love, of compassion. Born of freedom and expressed without holding back the boundlessness of the love that this is that we are and we might ask perhaps how is it that the water gets back to the ocean How does it do that? Apparently gravity's got something to do with it again. But you know, it just does. And always has so, done so. Couldn't help but do so. And so here we are.
Rumi says, So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you. The buoyancy. So may we all come to know, to understand what it means to be in the ocean of life and come to to rest in the buoyancy. For our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.